0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. On today's episode, we are pleased to be in conversation with the journalist Peter Beinart, who is a professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark School of Journalism at the City University of New York. He writes the Beinart Notebook a weekly newsletter and is editor at large of Jewish currents and recently had a very, very thoughtful op-ed piece in the New York Times, which is now called Guest Essays, entitled Palestinian Refugees Deserve to Return Home, Jews Should Understand from the May 12th, 2021 issue. Peter Beiner, welcome. Thank you. You know, I want to get right into it in terms of um What's happening right now? Really, over the last several weeks in in Israel, in Gaza, the the national and global discourse about Palestinian human rights, uh, and and really a shift that we're seeing culturally uh, in terms of how do we sort of frame uh, violence that is going on uh, in in the Middle East. Um, between Israel and and, uh, and and Palestine and this issue of human rights um, and for so long I think this issue has been uh undercut by uh at times genuine um charges of of uh operating in bad faith and people who are uh, trafficking in anti-semitism but then at times um, sort of defensive charges where uh if you don't believe a certain political line, you may be accused of, of of being in these sort of political darker spaces of anti-Semitism and hate. So I want us to break and unpack that because you've written so, so thoughtfully um, about this and you've been on CNN discussing this. You've been really one of the go-to people uh, in the country um, talking about um, Palestinian human rights and how an advocacy for Palestinian human rights does not automatically make one somebody who's against a thriving state of Israel. Terrific. Look forward to it. So my first question is, you know, how did we get here? You know, um, right now uh, we've seen the escalating violence. There's a there's a ceasefire, but th- there's been so much um, repeated recriminations back and forth. This idea of um, hundreds of thousands of displaced uh, Palestinians who are seeking, uh, uh, you know, refugee, refuge back in, in homelands that were historically, uh, you know, they were a part of, at least. Uh, and, and this idea of um, the rhetoric around Hamas and and uh, Palestinian violence against, against Israel. Um, how did we get here to this point today uh, where there's this tipping point of um, global public opinion that is really, I'd say, um, much more willing to publicly uh, stand on this issue of Palestinian human rights.
1: The shift in public opinion, at least in the U.S., um, is is something I'm still trying to unpack, um, The the reasons for it. I think one reason is that the Black Lives Matter movement but maybe also Me Too as well, have created a greater sensitivity, I think, in the media to questions of representation. Um, Not too long ago, it was pretty typical to just have conversations about Palestinians without having Palestinian voices on. That was pretty normal. And I think, and, and it was also more normal to have, you know, white people talking about you know, black people and and men talking about women. And I think that because people have become in the media a little more sensitive to those issues as it comes to race and gender in the United States, I think by analogy, they've become a little bit more embarrassed about the absence of Palestinian voices. And once you bring Palestinian voices into the conversation, it changes things in a big way. um, Because Palestinians tend to focus our attention on issues that are often otherwise ignored in the public discourse. I think another reason that the public discourse has changed is that Americans, at least progressive Americans, have become aware during the Trump era that we are in this struggle between, on the one hand, a vision of multiracial democracy that aspires to equality under the law, and this other vision, which is of a kind of a racial ethno state in which there are these hierarchies in in some people are real citizens you know some people are kind of first-class citizens and some people are second-class citizens um and some people are not citizens at all and and i think that especially because of the figure of benjamin netanyahu the israeli prime minister who has been someone who who has so much in common with figures on the american right i think it has made it easier for at least progressive americans to see an analogy between the struggle Here for equality under the law against uh, against kind of white nationalism and white supremacy, and the struggle there for equality under the law against an, an an Israel that that holds first of all holds millions of Palestinians under its control who are not citizens at all, can't even vote for the government that controls their lives, and then has another group of Palestinians who are second class citizens in a state that is explicitly privileges Jews over Palestinians. And I think that that analogy has, has had an impact.
0: Let's discuss your piece in the New York Times, May 12, 2021. And I would um, implore everyone to, to read this piece and to spread this piece around. Uh, it's so well written and so thoughtful. Palestinian refugees deserve to return home, Jews should understand. Peter, you telescope so much um, history in this essay. I know this essay is adapted from, um, a longer essay, uh, that, that, uh, appeared, um, um, uh, uh in, in Jewish Currents, I believe. Yes. Um, and where you're editor at large, let's talk from the beginning. You use the term, um, Nakba. Uh, what, what is that and why is that something that, um, both, both Jews and Palestinians should be sort of aware of and be willing to openly discuss, even if they disagree. Uh, what What is that?
1: When Israel was created um, in uh, um, in nineteen forty seven, nineteen forty eight, Um, there were, uh, seven, more than 700,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes. Um, it was commonplace often to say that, that, that most of the, that many of them kind of left of their own accord, but historical scholarship is pretty unambiguous that the vast, vast majority of them were expelled or fled in terror, um, during the fighting that accompanied, uh, Israel's creation. Um, and, um, and they were not allowed to return. Um, uh, in fact, even Palestinians who stayed inside the borders of Israel and then gained Israeli citizenship were still not allowed to return to their homes or their lands. Um, so is the, um, uh, so this, so at the, at the core of the Palestinian experience, um, is this experience of mass expulsion. And it didn't end in 1948 when in the 1967 war, when Israel took over East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza Strip, another 300,000 or so Palestinians were expelled or at least displaced from their homes. Then Israel between 67 and the 1990s adopted policies that basically meant that if you kind of left the West Bank as a Palestinian, you often were not allowed to return. And there are still kinds of policies like that that are in place uh, in East Jerusalem. And this is part of the reason that the, the, the spark that lit this, this, the match for this conflict, this eviction of Palestinians from East Jerusalem is so potent for Palestinians, you know, because it evokes this deep history of expulsion and, and dispossession. Um, one of the things, you, and one of the, it's impossible to truly understand Gaza, where Hamas is located, without understanding that most of the people in Gaza are refugees and the descendants of refugees. They're not from there originally. That's part of the reason it's so overcrowded. So just like you know, we in the United States have been struggling in recent years to uh, understand current politics against the backdrop of the deep structure, the deep history of the United States, this, this history of expulsion of, of what Palestinians call the Nakba, the catastrophe, in many ways, which is an ongoing event, is really central to understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's something that too often people in my own community, in the Jewish community, have not wanted to, uh, to face.
0: Peter, what do you think of these terms that some people on the left at least have used of of apartheid? And it's not necessarily a radical left. Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States, has used that term, too. Is that an accurate term or is that a term that um, uh, doesn't shed as much light on what's actually going on as, as, as possible? And if that's not the proper term, what would you describe uh, as the sort of the political situation in Israel. Is it second-class citizenship in terms of Palestinians versus uh, Israelis? Is it is it is it a non-citizenship? What what is it analogous to?
1: Yeah, it's not only Jimmy Carter, you know, for, two former Prime Israeli prime ministers, Ehud Barak and Ehud Omer, both warned that this was where Israel was heading. Um, there are obviously differences between the situation of Palestinians um, in Israel and the situation of of black South Africans. And people think of the term apartheid, they think of South Africa, but really the term has a broader definition. And the reason that, that Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, which is Israel's leading human rights organization, have used this term is that notwithstanding those differences, there is a system, a regime um, in all of the territory that Israel controls between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, in which Jews are Jews have rights that Palestinians don't. Um, now, the way it plays itself out is a little bit different in the different territories. In the West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, um, Palestinians live in various ways under the control of the Israeli state, and yet they cannot be citizens of that state. Which means they can't vote for the government that controls their lives. Um, in the West Bank, uh, where, uh, Jewish settlers and Palestinians live under a different law. So, if a Jew and a Palestinian get into a fight, they go to two completely different legal systems, in which Jews have due process and Palestinians live under military law, in which you know the prosecution rate is north of ninety nine percent. And even inside what people call the Green Line, Israel proper, where Palesti- where the twenty percent of the Israeli population who are Palestinians, do have citizenship, so they can can vote they can be in the in the parliament there are still very deep structural forces that i think anyone who is attuned to the structural inequities in the united states would recognize as quite profound exist as well so i'll give you two examples one is in immigration policy I as a Jew could go to Israel and become a citizen tomorrow. Um, But it's essentially impossible for a Palestinian, even a Palestinian who was born in Israel and expelled, even their or their child, to go to Israel and become a citizen. The way Israel's land policy works is also fundamentally reflects this deep Jewish privilege and Palestinian domination. Most of the land uh, in Israel is controlled by something called the Israel Land Council, which leases it out for these long-term leases. But the Israel Land Council is ha- de- allocates almost half of its seats to something called the Jewish National Fund, whose mission is the development of Jewish life in Israel. Right. So you almost have to, have to imagine what. It would be like if most of the land in the United States were controlled by an organization whose mission is for the development of Christian life. Let's say, Mm -hmm. right? That wouldn't, and that's part of the reason that Palestinian citizens comprise 19% of Israel's population and live on 3% of its land. So these are deep structural um, conditions. And whether you want to use the term apartheid or not, to me, is less important than that we just understand and describe these realities and explain why Palestinians think that they fundamentally are oppressive, just as any of the rest of us would if we were in that condition.
0: Let's talk about um, Hamas. In your uh, Biner notebook, you have uh, a recent uh, column from May 20th, 2021 that says, um, it's titled, If Israel Eliminated Hamas, Nothing Fundamental Would Change. Um, And I think a lot of people would find that surprising, because even during this recent conflict, um, when I would listen to um, uh, Israeli uh, government officials, They really hammered home this idea of Hamas, that this is Hamas is doing. Hamas is killing Israeli citizens and sort of forcing us into this disproportionate response because they're firing rockets from Gaza into bedrooms and they're killing innocents. So let's talk about Hamas and what is the role of Hamas in this specific conflict? And why do you argue um, that nothing would fundamentally change if Hamas was somehow eliminated?
1: Right. So Hamas is a Palestinian Islamist organization. It's important to remember that throughout the Middle East, you have this rivalry between more secular versions of Arab nationalism and and Islamist movements associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, So Hamas, it was the Palestinian wing of the Muslim Brotherhood. So Palestinians have the same kind of basic division that you see across the Middle East. Um, Hamas uh, is in the 1980s, uh, the Israeli government actually supported um, the Muslim Brotherhood which in Palestine, which became Hamas, because they thought it would be more moderate than the kind of more secular Palestinian leadership associated <laughs> with people like Yasser Arafat. That was at a, um, at a time when, you know, during the Cold War, the United States also tended to see Islamists like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan as less threatening than, than, than leftist nationalist movements. Um, um more since um, uh, in 19 then in 1993, the Arafat and the PLO recognized Israel um, and and supported a two-state solution. Hamas did not. Um, Hamas re- rejected uh, rejected that idea and then ultimately Hamas came to power in Gaza after winning an election. That um that the, the they won an election, but the Palestinian Authority, under pressure from Israel and the United States, refused to allow them to take the seats in Parliament, and then the u s. encouraged the, the Palestinian Authority to try to take control in Gaza by force, which actually ultimately ultimately led led Hamas to win. So there, there's a complicated history about Hamas, but I think the fundamental things to understand are this. The fighting between Israel and Palestinians did not begin with Hamas. Hamas emerges again in the 1980s. The the fundamental struggle, uh, this fundamental struggle goes back much, much, much longer than Hamas. And fundamentally, um, the the reason that um, Hamas has some sympathy among Palestinians is first of all, because those Palestinian leaders who have recognized Israel and who have pursued a strategy of non-violence like Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader in the West Bank have gotten nothing for it, nothing, right? I mean, the, the Palestinian life in the West Bank is worse uh, 15 years after the Palestinians started doing security cooperation with Israel and, you know, 25 years after they the PLO recognized Israel than it was before. So they are Palestinians who come to the conclusion, sadly, that actually Hamas's strategies of using violence are more effective at least that uh, than, than these non-violence strategies so one of the points I make in this piece is if you believe in non-violence as I do you have mm-hmm. an obligation to show to, to show that Palestinian non-violence can work instead when Palestinians try to boycott nonviolently they those boycotts get criminalized and they get called anti-semitic. Um, the second point that I that I make um, is that um, the there is a I I am a I am a I think I am opposed to Hamas's tactics of using rockets that fire that that land indiscriminately in Israel. Mm-hmm. I think that that is legitimately deserves to be investigated as a war crime, just like Israel's behavior deserves to be investigated as a war crime. But I uh, um um and, uh, and I also oppose Hamas's Islamist ideology, which I think is 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 in pretty deep ways illiberal. Um, but there's a tendency to, I think, have a double standard in the way we talk about violence. And you can talk, you, you can acknowledge that double standard without defending what Hamas is doing, which I would not do. In fact, Hamas blew up a, bom- a, a bus on which a close friend of mine um, was traveling in the 1990s. And so mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that Israel's policies are a form of violence. When you put Gaza, 2 million people under blockade, such that the UN comes out and says, Gaza is unlivable for human beings. that human beings can't really live here. In large measure, because people don't have clean water, because they don't have electricity, that's a form of violence, right? I mean, many of our own, you know, leaders in American history made this point, right? I mean that 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 one one has to understand state oppression as a force a form of violence. So that's important to understand. Secondly, um, uh, that um, just because some faction in a movement for fr- for freedom or national liberation uses violence does not delegitimize the basic justice of the movement. Right? Nelson Mandela was not an apostle of nonviolence, far from it. He helped to found Mukonte Wissizwe, the military wing of the ANC. Um, He refused to to renounce violence until he had a date for a free election. It didn't mean that the Black struggle against apartheid was illegitimate. Um, uh, And there are people in Myanmar now who are turning to armed resistance against that horrific military regime. It doesn't mean that their cause is unjust. And so I think that while one can be critical of Hamas's methods, as I am, and even critical of their ideology, it's important to—this is, they are often used to delegitimize the entire project of Pal- the Palestinian struggle for freedom. And I think that's
0: wrong. And this really dovetails, I, I love that answer. It dovetails into a, a question that I think people who are supporters of Palestinian human rights often get asked. And I want us to be up front and talk about it. Let's discuss the the, the rise in anti-Semitism that we've seen. Uh, you know, in the United States, we saw it during the January sixth uh, white supremacist riot at the United States Capitol. Uh, they didn't just have Confederate flags, but they had anti-Semitic T-shirts uh, and, and and paraphernalia with them as well. Um, how do we how do we juxtapose a legitimate rise uh, in anti-Semitism and also the historic uh, Jewish support for human rights and advocacy? whether we think about the civil rights movement, whether we think about labor movements, uh, movements that were on the side of justice in the United States and globally with this contemporary um, state of Israel uh, and the administration of, of, of Bibi Netanyahu, which has really articulated a very uh, right wing, very conservative uh, philosophy and ideology. But at the same time, um tries to bathe itself uh, in in the the moral glories of the past, because you write uh, in the New York Times, you know you talk about the morality or the immorality of what's happening uh, in, in in Israel to, to Palestinians, But I want to just um, put all that together. There, there is an increase in anti-Semitism. We've seen global, uh, not just the, the the Pittsburgh synagogue shoot uh, massacres, We've seen global massacres that were anti-Semitic. We see an uptick in anti-Semitic hate crimes. Um, And we also know the the, the history of of, uh, Jewish support for for human rights, um, both before and after the Holocaust. Uh, How do we put all that together? Because I think, historically, we think about the, the, the Jews and the Jewish state as being on the right side of history yet at the same time, um, given this history, especially in recent times, there's been sort of an evolution.
1: Yeah, um, there's a lot there. I guess I would say um, we have to be able to hold two things at one time, one of which is that anti-Semitism is real and it's it's creative, which is to say it finds its way into all kinds of different movements across the ideological spectrum, you know, from far left to far right. Um, and um, so we have seen um, uh, anti-Semitic attacks, really ugly anti-Semitic attacks, uh, it, that seem associated uh, with the Palestinian freedom movement, even though Palestinian leaders and activists generally denounce those in very strong terms. There, there have been people who, in as part of Palestinian marches, you know, or in claim, claiming solidarity with Palestinians, have have attacked Jews or defaced synagogues, which is which is tragic. And, and you know, and as I, as someone myself who walks down the street every day wearing a kippah, um, that you know, uh, and whose whose son does that that uh, that frightens me. Um, um, but it's also the case. That there is uh, that our communal leadership in the United States and in the Israeli government often use um, claims of anti-Semitism to try to silence Palestinians and their supporters from talking about Palestinian human rights. It is not anti-Semitic to call Israel an apartheid state. It's not even anti-Semitic to question whether Israel should be a Jewish state. After all, if you were a Palestinian, would you want to live in a Jewish state rather than a state that treated Jews and Palestinians equally? Of course not. It's not anti-Semitic for a Palestinian to be anti-Zionist because Zionism is an ideology, even if you believe it's an ideology that was a blessing for Jews and that Jews, that that we can be sympathetic to why Jews might might be sympathetic to Zionism, we can also understand why Palestinians might not be sympathetic to it because it involves essentially Jewish privilege over them. the, we have different species of anti-semitism again there is anti-semitism on the left some of it comes from a kind of a notion of a ca- kind of a leftist notion that jews are associated with a capitalist oppressive class um uh you know the marx called this the you know the anti the the the, the mark that was called this was called the socialism of fools um by Karl <laughs> Marx you know the connection the seeing the focusing on set of capitalists on jews you see that um uh and you also see um uh, you see this this right wing anti semitism as well that we've seen an upsurge of, a, of in the Trump era, and I think that my fundamental belief is that the struggle of, against anti semitism has to be part of a broader struggle against bigotry. Um, mm-hmm. These forms of bigotry are interconnected, and any 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 use of the claim of anti semitism that ends up justifying the denial of Palestinian rights is Um, is actually a desecration of the of of the Jewish struggle for dignity, because the Jewish struggle for dignity and freedom and Palestinian freedom must go hand in hand. And that any what's what we've seen in the United States in recent years is that Jews have been tempted some into an alliance with white nationalists Mm -hmm. who essentially say, listen, Good news, you know. We consider you, you know. So we, you're 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 not one of those immigrant groups, you know, anymore. You're you know, it's a Judeo-Christian country, i.e., it's us and you against the Muslims. You know, uh, you can be on the winning side. Look, even Donald Trump's daughter married a Jewish guy, right? Um, mm-hmm. But the the folly of this is that what we see is again and again is that bigotry that doesn't start with Jews often ends up with Jews. So. Mm-hmm. When we look at what happened in Pittsburgh, it's really kind of fascinating this guy who ended up shooting up that synagogue he was originally focused on central american migrants um that's where his his hatred started but because he was a racist he didn't believe that central americans could organize themselves so he started looking for this hidden hand that was doing the organizing and he landed on the jews he said the jews are organizing them because the stereotype of jews historically has been different it's been of the kind of the sinister evil genius and you know this is why I think during the civil rights movement, people said, well, it's the Jewish communists who are running the civil rights movement, right? Because mm. they, they were racist. They didn't think black people could organize a the movement themselves. In South Africa, they used to say that Joe Slovo, who was the head of the military wing of the ANC and the head of the South African communist party was running the ANC. He wasn't running the ANC. It's just that people, the, 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 what the defenders of apartheid thought that it had to be a Jew who was holding it all together. <laughs> and so we see that that these movements that begin with racism against black and brown people often end up also becoming a danger to Jews, which is why it's in our own self-interest to struggle against all forms of bigotry. You
0: know, Peter, I want you to uh, talk for a moment about your own evolution on these um, these issues. You know, how did you get here and um, in what ways? has that evolution provided both comfort and discomfort? Because Mm -hmm. I know often in the media, progressive or Jews, especially Jewish intellectuals like yourself and thought leaders like yourself, who um, raise these issues very, very thoughtfully, sometimes are are absolutely um, condemned and even condemned as uh, anti-Semites. And we think about the young woman who just was fired from the Associated Press uh for 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 some for some earlier tweets um there you know how's your own evolution how how you get to this point on this issue
1: i think it really began when i started spending time in the west bank with palestinians you know um which only happened when i was an adult you know like many jews i had been to israel a lot as a kid I had family there my father worked there and i had a, a you know had a very visceral and still do a, a relationship with the place. You know, it's it's hard to quite describe, but when you've grown up as a small minority, you know, even if in a place like the United States where you're treated pretty well um, and you go to a country which where, you know, most of the people are Jewish and where the public life and culture is Jewish, um, uh, and you walk around, you see the street signs and they're all named after figures from Jewish history. It, it's a, it's a very remarkable thing to see, very powerful and moving. And it was for me, like so many other people. Um, and I, I, uh, but, but, uh, you know, uh, later on in life, I, I went to, I, I went to see what Palestinian was life was like under Israeli control. And, you know, when you see what lives are like for ordinary decent people who are just, for, who live under the control of a state that is totally unaccountable to them th- can do whatever it wants to them throw them in jail, take their land, deny them water, demolish their houses and they're they're powerless because they can't vote they're not citizens. Um, it's it's just it's just brutal and shocking and I went back and um, it was not easy for me to figure out what to do with that um, but over a period of time, it began an evolution for me, and, and all, uh, in addition to a lot of reading I did um, in by Palestinian writers and others, I, I began to try to find, I began to move to a position where instead of believing, as I had for my entire life, that what you needed was a Palestinian state alongside a Jewish state, I came to believe that actually that it was not likely there ever would be a Palestinian state, and that the, the fundamental issues were deeper than that. They really had to do with the question of whether it was right to have a state in which Jews uh, were privileged over Palestinians, um, uh, and that that the, the fundamental vision should be a binational state in which you had two communities being able to be autonomous, running the schools in their own language, and that kind of thing. But but in a situation of equality under the law, and that journey has been, you know, not just an intellectual journey, but um, uh, an emotional and personal, even you know, spiritual journey for me. It's not. Uh, the, the central metaphor, one of the central metaphors in Judaism is the metaphor of, of of extended family. You know, in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis tells the story of a family. And then the book of Exodus, this family becomes a nation. Uh, and we use this phrase, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel. So I do see our people as a kind of an extended family. And as anybody knows, it's not easy to be in opposition to your family. Um, people don't always take it very well. Um, um But for me, the struggle is to. Be a critic uh, who is also who is also a, who is also shows love, and to say to my critics, you know, you can disagree with me as vehemently as you want, but I'm here in our community, and I'm not going anywhere. Um, and that my commitment to Judaism, the depth of my commitment to it, uh, and the depth of my commitment to the Jewish people is no less than
0: yours. In your New York Times piece, you 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 use the word. Um Teshuva. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us what that means, and in, in the context that you you use it? Sure. Teshuva means repentance. Um, so
1: it, it, it's a it's a religious term, um, um, but um, it, it also uh, actually the literal uh, definition is is return. It essentially means essentially to return to some better better self that you had. Um, um, uh, and I, I use this term, which would be a term that, for many Jews, would be familiar from uh, from Jewish religious ritual, to talk about the process of repentance that we need to undergo in regard to these acts of, of mass expulsion of Palestinians, um, uh, and that ironically, the term tshuva is actually means return which is that and uh, to argue that palestinians deserve the right to physically return and we need to go under, undergo a process of kind of moral return um a return to the 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 highest ideals of the jewish tradition um of a you know we ourselves know the experience of being refugees of being exiled uh, of of cultivating that memory of return and that are it is not consonant with our highest ethical ideals to tell another people that they just need to deal with it if we expelled them or their grandparents and grandpa- grandparents great grandparents and told them they can't return. And one of the things that I learned thinking and learned a lot of, a lot about over the past few years, reading the writings of people like Tanasi Coates and Adam Serwer mm-hmm. and, and 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 many others was just being reminded of the of the fundamental truth that if issues in a nation's past are not dealt with, uh, are not faced, they reoccur. Um, and that was the part of the argument I was trying to make as well, is that if we don't address and make, uh, and, and, and repent for what was done uh, to, Pal- to Palestinians, then we're gonna keep doing it.
0: In your latest um, piece for the, the Beinart notebook, which everyone should check out and subscribe to, you say progressives are comparing Palestinians to black American, Black Americans, that's good. Uh, talk to us about the uses of that analogy and even um, what, are, what are the limitations of that? Because certainly I've seen that as well uh, from BLM activists, but there's a, there's a history there that goes back to the 1960s and, and black power activists, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, others uh, talking about Palestinian human rights and the connection with with black struggles domestically um talk to us about those comparisons and where they work and 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 what if any are any limits to those comparisons
1: yeah and there's a there's a a lot of good you know literature about the historic relationship between uh, Black American politics and Palestinians. Um, Michael Fishback's book, you know, Black Power and, Pal- and Palestine. Robert mm-hmm. Kelly has written about this. You know, Mark Lamont Hill has written about this. A lot of people have written about this. And so if the analogy is not new, but I think it has gained new force because we are in a, a kind of a new age of, of of, uh, of you know, Black activism in the United States with Black Lives Matter. At a, at, um, and I the point I try to make in my piece is that Obviously, the situation of Black Americans and the situation of Palestinians is not exactly the same. Um, uh, that um, that you know, Palestinians um, uh, were expelled, you know, in, in, in very in very large numbers. That's a kind of core part of that experience in a way that's different for, for Black Americans. Also, Palestinians, um, the the dominant Palestinian tradition sees sees Palestine, Palestinians as a nation, as a separate nation, while, well, of course, there are elements of the Black tradition that, that, that see the, the Black experience in that way. There are also strong elements that, that imagine Black Americans as fully American and, and part of an American national identity. So, of course, there are differences, and of course, there are differences between Jews and white Americans in the sense that Jews were oppressed in a way that white Americans were not, mm-hmm. uh, and that also many Israeli Jews are actually by American standards, not exactly white in the sense that they come from the Middle East. You know, they come from Morocco or Iraq or Iran or Yemen or whatever. But my point was that an analogy, analogies by their nature are not between two things that are that are the same in every way. And if an analogy, what analogy is supposed to do is to highlight one, some fundamental similarity. And then offer something that some something to some kind of invite you to react in a certain way based on that that particular fundamental similarity. And there is a very basic fundamental similarity, which is that um, Black Americans have not had equal rights in the United States, and that Palestinians do not have equal rights in Israel Palestine. Um, and that is why, um, again and again, you see that Black Americans who go and see the situation of Palestinians um, uh, have an identification that's often deeper than the identification that white Americans do. Um, uh, Because they, in their own lived experience and their family history, kind of have this intimate understanding with what it's like to to live under a state that doesn't see you as fully equal, doesn't see you as fully human. Um, and, uh, And so I think that, you know, people, there've been a lot of people who've kind of been afraid of that analogy, but the truth is that um, I think it's a very healthy thing. Uh, American foreign policy is often based on analogies. Um, um, There are all kinds of different analogies that are often made to help us explain what's happening in in the rest of the world, but but oftentimes those analogies tend to come much more out of the experience of white Americans and their sense of American history rather than the experience of black Americans. And just like the, the black American experience and, the, and that analogy was crucial to powering the anti-apartheid movement in the United States in the 1980s. I think it, it, it's not surprising that it is a critical element of the movement for
0: Palestinian rights and freedom in the United States today. Well, my, my final question really is um, really a two-parter. One, where, where do we go from here? What can the Biden administration, what can nonprofits, activists... Organizers, citizens, um, both in the United States, but especially uh, also around the world, do to um, bring justice to this situation. I know some people have called for um, uh, 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 holding back uh, American um, foreign investment in in Israel, uh, or or weapons um, caches, or 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 um, some kind of policy way to push back against what's happening to, to Palestine. I mean, it doesn't seem like that's in the offing, but w- what can be done? What is Is there a strategy uh, where we say in five years, and 10 years, uh, not to say this issue has been solved, but we've made much more progress on the front of justice and repatriation or r- return home, uh, for, for, for Palestinians and really, uh, an end to this, this violence.
1: I don't necessarily think that America can solve this problem. Um, but I do think that America can have an influence on the power balance and that America can address its complicity. Um, and I think that starts with just asking ourselves basic questions, which is how do we feel about American tax dollars being used to demolish Palestinian homes? you know, something Israel does, you know, fairly frequently, not because these Palestinians have been accused of anything, but just because they can't get permits to build homes. Because again, if you're not a citizen, why should the government give you a permit? Frankly, Israel doesn't, would rather have those, you know, in a place like Jerusalem, Israel would rather have those Palestinians leave Jerusalem. So people build homes and then Israel demolishes those homes. Um, Israel uh, imprisons Palestinian teenagers um, uh, and treats them in a way that they would never treat Israeli Jewish teenagers. How do we feel about? that? Do we think that's a good use of our tax money? Um, uh, and so I think these are the basic questions that are addressed: our complicity, and, and um, you know we can also ask ourselves the question: Do we think that it's right for the United States to shield Israel from any international accountability in international institutions? We have this institution called the International Criminal Court. The United States seems quite willing and uh, sympathetic to the International Criminal Court bringing uh, people to justice in Africa. Um, Most of, a lot of the International Criminal Court's work has been done in Africa. Um, And yet our position is that under no circumstances could the International Criminal Court investigate Israel. I think if the International Criminal Court were to look at the question of war crimes committed by Israel and by Hamas as well, that would have an impact on on the behavior of Israeli leaders. So there is a tradition, you know, in the United States um, of us asking these questions about whether... The, the use of our money and our weaponry um, was, was, was going to, to further human rights or going to, to deny people basic human rights. And I think when you start to ask those questions, I think you end up in a place where it becomes pretty um, indefensible to say that we should be giving Israel $3.8 billion in unconditional military aid a year at a time when they hold millions of Palestinians without the most basic of rights.
0: Do you feel hopeful about this this situation? Is there is there any hope, uh, light at the end of the tunnel?
1: Um,
0: I guess I would, you know,
1: I think hope and optimism are two different things. You know, um, in the in Jew, the Jewish tradition is not necessarily is not necessarily a tradition I would say that emphasizes optimism, but it does have a reservoir of hope. Um, uh, and um, uh, and I think that where I take my hope from is the Palestinians. You know, my friend. Fadi Karan in Ramallah who um, who organized uh, freedom rides and basically got Palestinians on buses in Ramallah to try to go to Jerusalem, which they're not allowed to travel on because Palestinians generally can't go to Jerusalem. And it's not just that he did that, but he invited American Jews and other Jews to join him because he said, I, I, I have so much respect for the role of Jews in the civil rights movement and other freedom struggles that I want you to join our struggle as well. You know, And it'd be a struggle for for our freedom and your freedom. There, there are a lot of people like that, um, uh, who give me a lot of hope. And and a lot of them are living under really, really difficult circumstances. And it seems to me that as long as they're struggling and they're maintaining a vision of an Israel-Palestine that respects the dignity of all people, then people like me have an obligation in our small way to try to support them.
0: Thank you. We've been talking to Peter Beinert, who is a professor of journalism and political science at the Newmark School of Journalism at the City University of New York. He writes The Beinart Notebook, a weekly newsletter, and is editor-at-large of Jewish Currents. You can follow him on Twitter, at Peter Beinart. And his latest New York Times op-ed guest essay is entitled, Palestinian Refugees Deserve to Return Home, Jews Should Understand. Peter, it's been great talking with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you thanks for listening to this episode and you can check out related content on twitter at peniel joseph that's p-e-n-i-e-l j-o-s-e-p-h and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the center for study of race and democracy is on facebook as well this podcast was recorded at the liberal arts development studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.